Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, a piece-by-piece, episode-by-episode exploration of the winners of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, with hosts Andrew Grenade and David Thurmeyer. Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, episode 7, where we're traveling to 1949 and the seventh winner of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, Kansas City native Virgil Thompson for his score to the film Louisiana Story. And I'm excited about this one because we had the uh, Charles Ives episode a few few times ago, and I, I was really very excited about that one. And I know you've done a lot of work, Andrew, on Virgil Thompson. So why don't you t- tell us your experiences with Virgil and kind of what, what he means to you. Oh, what Virgil means to me. Well, <laughs> I first encountered Virgil as an undergrad uh, taking a American music class. I probably mentioned it in the podcast before because it's where I introduced, was introduced to a lot of these characters, especially like Howard Hansen, I know I mentioned at that point. But Virgil Thompson was one of those that we discussed. And I was fascinated by uh, the Four Saints in Three Acts. That was the piece we listened to. And again, when I went into graduate school, again, I studied that piece. And I thought it was a, a beautiful piece. And unlike anything I'd heard, it had a, a bit of a whimsy that I'm not used to hearing in American music, especially American opera. But then when I came to Kansas City, I learned very early on that he was from Kansas City. And so one of my early classes, I actually took them around to see all the spots where he had lived and worked because he's, he lived here throughout his first um, like 18 years of life before he went off to college. So we went to his house. We went to the church where he played the two churches really where he played organ. Uh, we went to his high school, right? And I have pictures of all of these. And in fact, <laughs> give you an idea of how deep into the Virgil cult I got. Uh, a couple of years ago, they decided, the city of Kansas City, decided to destroy the house that he w- grew up in to make way for a new police station. Oh, no. And so after they knocked it down, uh, a group of us went out and held a wake at Virgil's <laughs> house at the spot. <laughs> nice. So they played some of his music. I gave a little talk. Um, yeah, very involved. And it's it's one of those things that I think every city should celebrate, the artistic heritage of the city. And he's clearly a big part of the artistic heritage of Kansas City and in many ways has been forgotten. So it's nice to push him along a little way in terms of Kansas City. So that's a, a little bit of how <laughs> deep into Virgil I've gotten. Uh, and so now I've listened to a ton of his music. I'm taking part in a documentary they're making about Virgil. Um, so... That's more than you wanted to know. How about you, Dave? No, no, that's great. That's really interesting. I I have always been puzzled a little bit by Thompson. I feel like he's, until recently, actually, until this piece almost, I've not really been sure if he was a serious composer or not. I felt like a lot of his music was very, uh, it was just trying to be clever for the sake of being clever and just kind of uh, catty and, uh, you know, not, not all that. I don't know. I don't want to say fluffy. It's not fluffy, but it's just a little bit ephemeral. And uh, I, I, I think I, the more I read about it, I, I think there's more to it. But there is something off about him to me compared to some of the <laughs> some of the other uh, composers. No, I agree. I agree. Yeah. There is something off. Yeah, and I, I don't know if it's because he became such a well-known critic and was really. Uh, best known for that and being having wonderful parties and kind of being the the New York 
guy around town who the gadfly kind of mm-hmm. uh, who was who known for that more than some of the music but and obviously he was well trained and had a lot of you know had great skills and and could do well but uh, he also wrote a very lukewarm article about Ives so I have to say uh, <laughs> I know he, he called the he called Ives the father of us all or something uh, but he he had, he was not convinced that Ives was more than an amateur and a little bit kind of a you know yeah so he's colored for you for a all little time. bit yeah a little bit but but I do respect his writing and he's very interesting to read and well, let's get started and talk a little yeah. bit about his background. Exactly. Uh, and then we can look a little bit at his writing, both in prose and his musical writing. Telling the story. So when we talk about uh, Virgil Thompson, there are really kind of two Thompsons we can talk about. There's the composer and then there's the critic. And he's one of these. He's still, I think, held up as one of the best critics uh, writing in English in the United States really of all time. And he still has that very much his, um, that legacy. But as a composer, he's very much in the kind of Aaron Copeland school. And we talked about Copeland uh, about four episodes ago. He's very much in that school because he's one who goes to France and uh, studies for a little bit of with Nade Boulanger and helps bring Aaron Copeland actually into Boulanger's orbit. But he leaves that quickly because he wasn't interested in the kind of Stravinsky side of things. He's more interested in the Satie side of things. Mm-hmm. I think that's why you think about him being a more kind of off-kilter composer because he has that Satie in him. Right, right. Yeah, and that uh, wasn't, he was one of the first to study with her, wasn't he? Or fair, he was. Yeah. And I, I just don't really see that very much because of that kind of the absurd nature, all the Gertrude Stein stuff and... Just a very different approach. He was very prolific, though. I mean, he was extremely he was. prolific and wrote all different types of pieces, known for the operas, probably, as you mentioned earlier, that are really popular. Uh, but he did do some unusual pieces, too. Uh, he arranged Brahms's chorale preludes for orchestra, I believe. So he did some of these arranging arrangements and kind of had his hand in everything. Uh, but, uh, yeah, as a composer, I think, well, well, we'll get to it later to see if he's thought of anymore. But I think if he's taught, I would say it's for the operas, right? And it's probably history. for Four Saints. The other piece that uh, I hear a lot about, both in performance and in people talking, is the Symphony on a Hymn Tune, mm, right? Which he wrote in the late 1920s when he was in Paris. Because when he goes to Paris, <laughs> he basically stays up until the outbreak of almost World War II. Uh, the Symphony on a Hymn Tune, though, really gets that kind of copeland-esque sound of americana and he did it years before aaron copeland got there and he did it by going to his own heritage so growing up as a midwest baptist boy (laughs) he borrows those sounds of you know protestant hymnody in the united states and the way in which uh people sang that those hymns and especially jesus loves me and how firm a foundation are the two he uses in that symphony but it also points to what I think is probably the best thing about him as a composer is his ability to set the English language, especially as Americans speak it. Mm. So it's very natural and it's very conversational almost in all of his songs and in his operas. It doesn't sound like he's taking German melodies and putting English text to it. It sounds natural the way they fit together. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I don't know the ver- the hymn tune, symphony on a hymn tune, but I'm guessing that if you're saying his use of tunes is more in the Copeland style. It's not in the Ives style, particularly. It's not at all in the Ives style. <laughs> no, okay. <laughs> yeah. So which no, they're fully what? quoted, and 
they are the themes of especially the first movement they are the themes they're not the kind of fragmented themes that we heard with the the ives for instance when we listened to that a couple of episodes ago right so the piece today uh, comes from a movie, Louisiana Story, and it took him a while to get to this point. So he'd really, like you said, gotten had a lot more renown for other pieces. And this wasn't until the late 40s uh, or mid 40s when this actually came about. And he was already a critic by then, right? He was already... He was. Yeah. In New York. Yeah, he came back When he came back to New York, uh, it was to become a critic. And he became one of the most influential music critics of the time. I mean, really just a um, no holds barred kind of <laughs> critic. <laughs> when he heard something he liked, he praised it. And when he heard something he did like, he didn't mind um, telling it. <laughs> yes. As an aside, I, I'm doing the critical editions of uh, some of Charles Ives's choral music. And he attended a, the premiere or uh, the New York premiere of uh, Psalm 67 and said it was a very lukewarm review it's sort of like, well, it's pleasant, but uh, it's not really that interesting. But then he ended by saying, but it is always nice to hear Ives performed by a quality ensemble or something. So yeah. damning with faint praise to some extent. Oh, there. he regularly yeah. did that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> one of the ones I always tell my students is one of my favorites is evidently he attended a concert. He wrote a review and the person pushed back against his review in the letters, which you never want no, to do. No, no. Flame war. And he, <laughs> he said something to the effect of, well, I sleep very lightly at concerts, and if anything, either bad or good had happened, it would have woken me up. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah. Why don't they write him like that anymore? You know? Was, oh, I know. Yeah, the good old days. Oh, well. <laughs> and so, for instance, uh, Walter Piston, who we talked about in the last episode, uh, in one of his reviews, he called him a wannabe Beethoven. Ooh, ooh. He's <laughs> <laughs> not going to. A fellow Harvard uh, person. That's right. Mm -hmm. And another, he praised Pisson at other points. But uh, I also have just a couple of quotes just to give you an idea of uh, his ability to describe music in prose, which I think was pretty unparalleled at the time. So talking about Debussy and his tone poem, Je, he says, uh, it represents the attenuation of musical materials into a luminous and golden dust. It glows like mercury vapor or a sunset in Texas and is as immaterial to the touch. That's beautiful. That's it's really and it really me. does describe that piece and Debussy, which whom, whom he loved. I know he was a big fan of Debussy. Debussy, and because I have a book of uh, Debussy piano music about piano music, and he wrote the foreword for it. So uh, he was very involved in French. I guess very very much a francophile uh, type. Very person. much a francophile. Yeah, that's very much who he appreciated was the French style of yeah. of music. So that brings us to the background of this piece and. Uh, it comes, as we mentioned, it's a movie, a film score, and in fact, still the only film score that has won the Pulitzer Prize. And uh, I, I, well, we got to talk about the movie here. So because we, Andrew got through it and no, has seen it a couple times, I could not get through it. And it, it's, but it's by a famous person, famous documentary, one of a groundbreaking doc documentarian, Robert Flaherty. So what, what yeah, do we need actually... to know about him? Really, the only thing I think that we need to know as background is he kind of inter, uh, invented the narrative documentary form as we understand it today. So a uh, very famous film called Nanook of the North from the <laughs> 1920s, which he uh, basically helped finance and produce and then directed and introduced this idea of a documentary that tells a story as opposed to just putting a camera up. And we see this everywhere, right? I mean, everyone's watching The Tiger King right now on Netflix, and that's... <laughs> 
that's a narrative documentary. It's not actually uh, just pointing the camera and showing exactly what's there. Things are cut to make a story. And Flaherty got a lot of flack for that uh, in his day mm. in that he would stage things and he would cast characters to fill the story that he wants to tell. And he does this here in Louisiana Story in that it shows a family, mother, father, and son, who are not actually related to each other. They were <laughs> actors that he went and he found and he cast them. Um, they were from the Louisiana Bayou, but they weren't actually a family. And then he makes this up uh, this very loose story. There's almost nothing to the <laughs> thin, story. I would say. <laughs> very thin. Very thin. Um, uh, about a family that sells the mineral rights to an oil company and they come and dig and oil Derek and bring prosperity to everyone. And that's basically the story of the movie. Yeah. And there's a cute raccoon. That's right. The boy does play with a raccoon on his canoe. And uh, now this was not Thompson's first film score. He had quite a bit of experience with an earlier uh, film writer, didn't he? A film or director. Yeah. He, he was not unfamiliar with the documentary film. Uh, in the 1930s, he wrote uh, The Plow That Broke the Plains and the River um, for Per Lorentz, who was a documentary filmmaker on the payroll of the New Deal. Mm. So that was his first kind of foray, and he got a lot of fame. Those are probably still better known than Louisiana Story, but as films and as his film score. But the film itself of Louisiana Story, when it came out in 1948, was hugely successful. I mean, it got... Academy Award nominations for the for the story, which amazes me. There's ah. like 24 lines of dialogue. Ah, There's the almost thing. no dialogue. That's the thing. It's it's beautiful. Well, the the YouTube video is really terrible. It's very uh, grainy and like a lot of like very hard to see. Uh, but it looks like it would be pretty in the the bayou, and it's very pastoral. And that's actually one of the titles of the sweet movements. Uh, but it's very like just the scenery is very pretty, and so I think the music instead of just accentuating the dialogue it really kind of tells the story and it's it's the focus of this whole it really is. movie is the the music which i think flaherty liked that we found out that he was impressed with thompson and, and didn't mind having thompson's music kind of run the show here yeah even in the mix and you're right it is a beautiful film the um cinematography is really breathtaking and the mix of the orchestra is much higher. And they even went and got the Philadelphia Orchestra yeah. to record, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. So now, of course, it, we're, we're burying the lead here about <laughs> what was able to pay for all this stuff and was able to pay to get the Philadelphia Orchestra and Virgil Thompson. Well, there's a little propaganda here. Standard More Oil. More than a little. More than a little. Yeah. Standard Oil Company uh, funded this film as a way to... To show, look, we can, you know, these these bumpkins out in the bayou here, we'll, we'll sell them, you know, we'll build our oil derrick. And, and even if something goes wrong, which it does in the movie, because there's like one, I did see the part where there's oil gushing and stuff. Yeah, at one time the derrick they bring in and explodes. Yeah. But, you but they know keep what? it largely off. They keep it largely off screen, though. That's right. You you basically see newspaper clippings saying there was a horrible explosion, but you never see the <laughs> the economic and environmental no, devastation no. that would have caused. They're just like at the end, look, we got some money, we can buy presents for each other. That's right. It all's cleaned up and amazingly fine after that. So and the boys like putting his canoe right next to it, waving to the people. And they're like, come on. He's barefoot running around the oil derrick. They're like, ah, oh, look at the little scamp. It's awful. It really is awful. 
<laughs> but clearly the, uh, the the music is what makes this most interesting and and it is very interesting so maybe it's time to go behind the notes behind the notes so as you had mentioned earlier there's a lot of music in this movie so over the course of the entire film there's maybe 15 minutes that doesn't have music it's just almost wall-to-wall music um did you notice when there isn't music uh i don't know if i really paid attention that much no <laughs> well i know they were you talking. really enjoyed this I, movie didn't you dave well they were talking i know there was the father the, the grandfather of the boy and right. the, the, he was he had a few choice words there was the oil guy and then the boy uh but i don't remember yeah, you know, what's what's happening when they're not speaking? When they're not, just not the music. only the only time that there's really not music is when they're on the oil derrick, oh. and you hear the sounds of the machinery. But he didn't put any music. I don't. He didn't want to com- compete evidently against that sound. Mm-hmm. But it also makes the oil derrick this kind of sterile situation where the the landscape when you're out is lush and you have this beautiful string sound, and then you go on the oil derrick and it's like kachunk kachunk kachunk. <laughs> yeah. And so you get this this interesting kind of. Uh, delineation between the natural environment which has thompson's beautiful score and then you have the unnatural environment of the oil derrick which is completely silent in terms of music mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well it it yeah and, and so he he wasn't going to let this opportunity go and in in anthony Tomasini's biography of uh of thompson he talks about how virgil thompson was really 60 minutes of 77 for the film as you said uh he was not going to just let this go and just disappear in a film so he extracted two different suites from it so there's an actual louisiana story suite for orchestra which is what were that's what won the award the pulitzer prize and then there's also a suite of acacian songs uh, that he he became interested in the alan lomax the uh, great collector and musician ethnomusicology guy uh, put together a whole collection uh, of french folk songs from louisiana and the bio and so thompson did get to learn some of these songs and included them right he did uh, he also found a book called louisiana french folk songs that irene therese whitfield put together and so when you hear tunes that sound like they would have come from louisiana they actually did they're either written in the book or their recordings that he found in the library of congress and he took those tunes and he contrasts that with kind of the the scenic music which uh to my ears sounds a lot like debussy it really does yeah maybe we can listen to the kind of opening pastoral portion So that so he oh go ahead. Well, it's just that he really contrasts that section of the the pastoral with the more almost danceable jigs that he heard and found in Louisiana music and put into the film. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we should say the the way this the suite is organized is really it brings up a lot of interesting questions about connections to western art music and forms Mm. because it starts out with as you said the pastoral movement which has a subtitle the bayou and the marsh buggy and (laughs) which the marsh buggy i assume is the boy on the canoe uh, kind of going through the second movement is corral and the the 
subtitle is The Derrick Arrives. So we're bringing in the oil derrick. And then the third movement is, which also goes into the fourth movement, is a Pasacalia robbing the alligator's nest. And then my favorite movement is the last one, which is a fugue. And it's, it is supposed to depict the boy uh, fighting against the alligator, uh, which you can see in the movie. I did, I did make it to that. So it's interesting. You've got four movements, and they're all related to Western art forms. So the whole idea mm-hmm. of the pastoral, which goes back way, way back, uh, most famously in Beethoven's Pastoral Symphony or Bach's uh, Sheep May Safely Graze. I mean, a lot of ideas about the pastoral. Obviously, the chorale is a form. Uh, and then Pasacalli and Fugue. It's very Baroque, actually. Very it is. Bach-like. Yeah. Well, I think you can see the influence of the kind of neoclassic aesthetic that he would have really been in in France in the 1920s. I mean, starting with Nadie Boulanger and then moving into the whole artistic scene of the time was very interested in reviving those old forms using new harmonies, but using those older forms. Now, didn't Piston do that too? I mean, we had... The wannabe Beethoven? Yeah, the wannabe Beethoven. <laughs> I mean, Piston... We've seen, that, yeah. we've seen that with Piston and we've seen that with Hansen. Right, right. But it sounds different here. For some reason. It does sound different. I think it's the harmonic usage. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, one of the most striking moments in the film is that chorale section. Yeah. Because when the oil derrick is floating down the river, and as it appears, it looks like a church yeah. with this huge <laughs> steeple like rising up over yes. the, the tree line. And that's the music that you hear. So you have that song that he's borrowed from uh, the Alan Lomax collection. And then suddenly you stop and there's this gorgeous chorale this very reverent, liturgical-sounding music, and then it cuts back to the boy, and you get the you know little folk tune, and then you come back to the Derek. Uh, we can listen a little bit to that. crazy it's like this oil derrick is a church where these people are going to go worship and it's going to bring them wealth it's just the propaganda is overwhelming it is it is but the music is so good and it just fits really well and sets the mood and i was trying to think why would he use a fugue to depict a uh, a boy fighting with an alligator or some kind of scene like that and it kind of makes sense because you've got your subject your answer and then the, kind of going back and forth with modulations and different things it's a very uh, fugues are not usually very peaceful types of pieces they're very complex right. dense a lot going on many things happening at once and that's kind of a fight like scenario uh, but it's just I, I, my favorite movement apart from the fugue is the first I love the the pastoral the, the sort of sweeping strings and the sweeping and the harp. harp yeah the, with the little glockenspiel and uh, it's it's beautiful. It's very modal, very mm-hmm. like you say, Debussy, very French sounding, uh, almost a you know, medieval type sound to it. Uh, but it's uh, it it fits very well the, the 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 movie that's going on. It really does. I don't think the movie would work at all if it weren't for the score. No, <laughs> no, not at all. It also shows, so one of the things about Thompson's music is that there is a simplicity and a clarity Mm -hmm. to it. 
so that you can hear each of the parts. There's a lot of space in terms of the way he builds his chords. And so it becomes a music that you come in and inhabit as you're watching the film, which I think just adds to the kind of the, the attempts to draw you in. And now, if they were a really great story... <laughs> Maybe your attention wouldn't be on the music as much if you had a good story. That's true. So the, the music and the cinematography are both absolutely, yeah, absolutely beautiful. Well, before we get into the jury information and all the details, I'm curious to think about one of our previous winners and a friend of Thompson was Aaron Copeland, and he also has pieces that, as you say, inhabit the the spaces. And Appalachian mm -hmm. Spring was a big example of that. Do you feel similarities when you hear? this piece versus what Copeland is doing in Appalachian Spring, or is it totally absolutely. different? No, there's absolutely a connection. I think his harmony, his Thompson's harmonies are more advanced. Hmm. Um, and I think the, like you're pointing out the use of modality. Thompson doesn't always go where I expect him to. And a lot of times Copeland does. And I think to me, that's the difference that I hear. But in terms of the way they're using the tunes, it's a lot of similarities. Yeah, yeah. So it must have been in the in the air, in the water, in the 40s here. I mean, this was the movie premiered in 1948, and uh, so a few years after Copeland, but still that Americana sound was quite prominent. And well, in the same year as one of Copeland's most famous film scores for The Red Pony. Funny you mention that because we move along to the discussion about the jury itself. And there's some, a little bit of debate here, because in, in a book I, that we've been consulting about the Pulitzer Prize, it says that the jury sheets were lost and that we really can't find it. But then other sources like Tomasini's book and, and others actually talk about who was on the jury. So who was on the jury? I bet our old friend Chalmers Clifton is here. Well, of course, <laughs> Chalmers Clifton. But and now we're getting into even more. We've talked around this a lot, the politics of the Pulitzer Prize jury. Which that Chalmers uh, Clifton, I'm sorry, which uh, Tomasini calls chummy, the chummy nature of the Pulitzer Prize polit that's political scene. That's the best description. Yeah. Chummy. Because Chalmers Clifton knew all these people. And in fact, uh, he regularly invited Thompson to his conducting classes to teach. So there's a huge connection with oh, these people. No. <laughs> right? And uh, evidently, we uh, from the sources that we've been able to find, Henry Cowell was also uh, a member of the jury this year and uh, a pianist who was teaching at Juilliard, Beveridge Webster. Mm -hmm. So you have three people who are uh, kind of in the musical community, and especially someone like Cowell would have been more supportive of Thompson than if they had had uh, any number of other people. <laughs> True. Uh, it, I, I find it strange, though, that uh, Cowell, I just, uh, I, that's the first time I'd seen that, and I know this was after his release and i think after when he was in prison uh so he was kind of rebuilding his own stature uh, but I, I think it was nice that he was involved uh, but it was he and chalmers clifton disagreed on the vote with beverage webster because as we found out and as you mentioned earlier another film score aaron copeland's the red pony got one vote from webster and two for uh, the thompson film so Interesting. I mean, that's a Red Pony is a famous film score, certainly. Mm -hmm. And uh, which one do you like better? I actually have to lean toward the Thompson. Yeah, I do. So you, you would have I voted just... with Clifton and Cowell. I would always vote with Clifton. No. <laughs> He's paying no, you. I think the reason that I would vote for it is because uh, 
the Red Pony has other things that are keeping it going. Yeah, like the With story. With Louisiana Story, it works because of this film score. Hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. So that was that's basically all we could find in terms of the actual information about the jury because we have very little information. But uh, yeah, so two to one vote uh, in favor of Mr. Thompson. Maybe it's time to see the hit or miss if it worked for us and then the post Pulitzer life of Louisiana story. Hit or miss. All right. So I think I've already showed my hand about if this is a hit or a miss for me. Uh, what about for you, Dave? I think it's a hit. Uh, it's, it's given me a different perspective of Thompson, uh, less of the, like I was saying earlier, less of the, the, jokey that's not not jokey i you know what i mean it's it's yeah yeah uh the, the settee influence less of that like the sort of wink wink nod nod haha we're in this little quirky joke kind of thing here it's a very different sound and a very attractive sound and mm -hmm. uh, it shows he's got craft with his use of existing forms and kind of tailoring them to his liking so I think it's great. I, I like this piece a lot, and I've listened to it a lot this week. Yeah, I think that you would kind of um, agree with. So John Briggs was one of the critics in New York at the time who disagreed with Thompson regularly. <laughs> and in his review, he said, This reviewer, having long since pegged Mr. Thompson as an amusing but rather superficial dabbler in musical composition. Ah. See, it's kind of what you're yeah, saying. Yeah. Was boiled, bowled over by Louisiana Story. It is a first-rate piece of work. Its solid craftsmanship was no surprise. Mr. Thompson has shown himself to be a competent technician, but in Louisiana's story, there is something more, a new depth and power of musical expression. The score is no musical pot boiler. <laughs> it has weight, dignity, and something that frequently approaches grandeur. Ooh, ooh. That's really high praise. Very high praise. And, and then you, you dug out this quote from John Cage, which is probably the last person I would expect to say this, but he says in... in the music section of Thompson's 1959 biography, the quality of mastery moves through the music of Louisiana Story. All the notes perform the composer's commands, never once seeming to be useless or engaged on their own independent projects, neither a paste-up job nor a neo-romantic expression of personal feelings. Louisiana Story is a public project. So high praise from John Cage as well. And... Sometime else we can go into the history of John Cage and Virgil Thompson because it is a interesting, oh. uh, fascinating. He was originally commissioned to write a full biography of Thompson and ended up only writing the music section while someone else wrote the, the history of his life. Hmm. Very interesting. Oh, I'll have to talk to you about that off, uh, off camera here. Off. Uh, well, we can we can link to. There's a great article we can link to in the yeah, the website. But what's fascinating to me is that hugely praised. This film itself gets an Oscar nomination for the writing, but there's no Oscar nomination for the score. No, no. And, and we've already talked about the quality of the writing or just the, the fact that there really isn't much writing in it, uh, but it wins. And it's, uh, I don't know what was going on. Do you think it was... It was another political thing. Now, I mean, I see Thompson himself claimed that it was poor performance, as the YouTube person I saw said. <laughs> poor performance by the Philadelphia Orchestra and Eugene Ormandy, who was unprofessional. But I, I, I don't doesn't sound that bad to me. 
Yeah, I don't think it was the sound of the orchestra that prevented it. I think it's more the Oscars are a Hollywood politics. Yeah. And he's not in the Hollywood scene. And most of his scores were for films produced outside of the studio system. It's not that surprising that he was passed over for an Academy Award nomination just because he's not of the Hollywood world. Mm -hmm. uh, the person who won the 1948 Oscar, Miklos Roja, was well established in the Hollywood scene. So it makes total sense that they would celebrate something coming out of the studio system. Now that said, something we've talked about a lot after each composer, and I think we've been all wondering about just about apart from Copeland and maybe Ives, we've been wondering why the music of these composers we've studied is not performed. I mean, when was the last time you heard an orchestra play this piece, play the suite from Louisiana I've Story? I've never heard an orchestra play this no, piece. No, never. Or or even any of Thompson's music. You rarely hear it anymore. I know it was probably popular at some point right after this came out, but is there again this bias against American composers writing orchestral music? I just wonder if Thompson he didn't shoot himself in the foot, as it were, by being such an influential critic because no one wanted to go against Virgil Thompson mm, because right. you either play his music and everyone thinks you're sucking up to the most powerful critic or you don't play it and, mm. right, you're, you're damned, damned if you do, damned, damned if you, damned if you don't, don't in this right. way. Well, now the big question I have for you, since uh, you may not, if, you're, if you know Andrew, you know he's a huge film buff and a huge film score scholar, but if you don't, then maybe this will be very interesting. But I'm curious why in the whole history of the Pulitzer Prize, why do you think no other film score has won, given the fact that we've had a lot of very famous film composers, and we have a budding one as our producer right now, uh, but we have you know, a lot like John Williams, and you go on and on and on with all the names, Bernard Herrmann, all goes go on. Mm -hmm. So why do you think another film hasn't won? I think it goes back to the chummy nature of the Pulitzer <laughs> board because really if if anyone should have won Bernard Herrmann should have won in 58 59 60 for Vertigo North by Northwest or Psycho mm -hmm. any one of those uh, amazing scores could have won the Pulitzer Prize so I think that there was a bias I think the only reason that you have two nominated this year with Louisiana Story and Red Pony is because they were composed by Virgil Thompson and Aaron uh. Copeland who were in that world who were seen as uh, composers of concert music who were dabbling in mm. film music as opposed to film music composers because composers who went all in in the film music world um, oftentimes were not then seeing their later work as as serious mm -hmm. as serious as art uh, as those composers and then those who did their entire work people like John Williams who've done most of their work in film music uh, are viewed by the establishment for a long time as not real serious art composers. And so there's a bias I think they have to get over. So it goes back to that legitimizing the fact that Copeland and, you know, had good training and uh, Thompson went to Harvard and they studied with Nadia right. Boulanger and they could write symphonies and chamber music, stuff like that. Oh, okay, that makes sense. So it's, it's always political, isn't it? But even within the last, I mean, that's changed a lot within the last 20 years. Right. I'm wondering if we're time for a new... Um, Oscar nominated, uh, Pulitzer nominated score to come out because really since about 2004, 2005, the Pulitzer board has changed and has opened up right. what they'll look at, uh, which is why we get to um, the win for Kendrick Lamar, for instance. That never would have happened 20 years ago, but as they've opened up the rules, I think that it might be that a new 
composer of film scores has a chance now. Mm. But there still is a bias in the classical musical world against film scores that's just, it's going to take a couple more decades to get over, I think, before um, they're held up. Which is funny, given that that's probably the best way for a classical composer to have their music heard nowadays. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So ironic, all sorts of political and interesting things happening here around this Pulitzer Prize in 1948. But it was an interesting one, and I think we both give it a thumbs up. Absolutely. Well, that's it for this episode of Hearing the Pulitzers. As always, you can find more about this project at our website, hearingthepulitzers.com, where you'll find links and a short bibliography where you can read more about Virgil Thompson. Also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at HPulitzers for links and trivia between episodes. And finally, join us our next episode when we'll be exploring the first musical Pulitzer of the 1950s uh, and our first opera, Giancarlo Minotti's The Consul. Until then, keep listening. <laughs>